0: This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Hi, I'm Heather Renee May, and this is Flipping Dreams Podcast. One, two, three, four. to be could be, and I Flipping Dreamers, welcome back this week. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, taking you to the Lion's Lair in Denver and what music sounded like back in early 90s when my band played there. Um, And this week, I'm continuing down this path, this nostalgic path, and I know that can be a slippery slope. Don't worry, I won't go too far into this, but I did want to tell you about one of the other iconic places during that time and for myself and many others and that's Muddy's Java Cafe and um, Muddy's actually had two different locations at least the Muddy's I knew was the second location near Five Points on 22nd and Champa and um, it, the history of this coffee house and how it was created um, I just picked up the book Muddy's Chronicles, Memoirs from the Last Great coffee House by Bill Stevens, who was one of the owners of the second Muddy's with uh, Joe DeRose. And um, I think that uh, if I can paint the picture for you, Muddy's was like this block-long bastion for those of us who were young, a lot of homeless teens, uh, kind of philosophers, hippies, uh, intellectuals. It was a coffee house and restaurant and bookstore. And it was open from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. every night. And it's where we would all gather and be safe and warm and just kind of feed our intellectual curiosity, playing chess or hanging out and um, chatting and reading books and little nooks and crannies of, of the old building. Um, so uh, I'm going to read the preface of his book, which really kind of describes this, this place, um, as it was. Muddy's Genesis began in 1975 and was the brainchild of Joe DeRose. It actually started as a debating club for a few graduate students in sociology from the University of Colorado. They found a place in an old downtown hotel, the place was at the lower end of its declining years. It was a marriage of convenience, cheap rates, and poor students, but it gave them a place to contend and wrangle with each other in relative comfort. Eventually, their good fortune ended, and they had to move. They wound up just three minutes north of downtown Denver on 15th Street, masquerading as a bookstore. By adding coffee, pastries, sandwiches, and finally an old manual lever espresso machine, they transmogrified the bookstore into a full-fledged coffeehouse and live theater, aptly named Muddy Waters of the Platte, Inc., and the slightly off-center theater. Muddy spent the next 20 years surviving on a month-to-month lease, under the mainstream radar and against all odds, a way of life for the counterculture. Although the birth canal had been strange, Muddy's became a wildly successful bistro of the night, open from seven in the evening until four in the morning. The theater hosted music, plays, live drawing classes, and the piece de resistance, Muddy's summers of jazz. We hosted all the governors of Colorado and all the mayors of Denver for every year we were open. However, that was only a small part of Muddy's patina. It also caught the tail end of the beat generation. Pontifical greats like Ken Casey, Allen Ginsberg, and Jack Michelin railed against man and machine in Muddy's confines, showing us that social oxygen exists everywhere. My experiences and perspectives are also chronicled through these stories. I opened the expanse of the Medis family for all to see, and thus opened my life for the same inspection. Most of these events came to me in the best way possible, as they happened. Muddies nurtured the lives of some of the strangest, sweetest, and saddest people I've ever known. Egalitarian in nature, we also sheltered the bizarre, the demented, and those soulless beings whom the world never knew existed. There was no chasm between the bitter and the frightened, or normal and the sociopath. Muddies protected and gave sanctuary to all. This book is for any person who has ever passed the night in world-changing conversation, played games of chess or bridge that supplanted sleep, or shared intimate moments with someone lost in a world of chaos, and all of it fueled by espresso. The people described here really existed, and most are still around today. Finally, this book commemorates an era of historical importance about Denver that needs to be archived and passed on. There are more than 80 stories in this memoir, and the events take place in both the original and the new medis. Some of the characters and stories have been amalgamated, but the underlying truth remains. I am sure some of the parties may not remember moments in time the same way or with the same emotional content as I. Where I could, I have kept the real names to honor their experiences." that's Bill Stevens in 2008 in the preface of this book, which I will leave links to. And one of the characters that he describes is someone that I knew as well. And I was thrilled to read his description. Um, And this man's name was John Wayne Brewer. And this is also from his book, Reading. John Wayne Brewer was the undisputed king of the area around New Muddies, like the King of New York or the Pope of Greenwich Village. In that same sense, John ruled his little fiefdom from Broadway North to 23rd and Champa Street, east to Welton Street. His motto was, his territory, his rules. John slept, ate, and God love him, he drank on the streets somewhere in that sector. Both Eric and John were stone alcoholics, but functional in their element, and they seem to thrive with us. The people of Muddy's learned about Ernest Endicott a long time ago, not to be judgmental. I think both John and Eric responded well to this. John once said to Joey and me, You guys see me as a man. He seemed genuinely surprised at this. John decided that we would be a good addition to his kingdom, so he threw in with us and gave us his wholehearted support. As with Ernest, John came to us through a gift of the Maori. moire, moire with the fates using Eric as a divining rod. Eric and I were trying to lay a patio in the back with some flagstone that Joey had scrounged. He arranged to have it delivered, which meant being dumped on the parkway at the side of the restaurant. The pieces were from the sidewalks of an old Denver neighborhood and were sometimes as much as three inches thick and almost immovable. When they used a forklift to take them off the truck, we should have had a clue. Eric and I were having such a hard time with the whole project. He was half my size. We only had a small garden wheelbarrow and a couple of heavy crowbars, a two-handed sledgehammer, and some two-by-fours. I found some rope in the trunk of my car, and that completed our set of tools. Eric and I finally levered a big piece to the vertical, and were holding it exactly perpendicular when we realized that we could not do anything else with it other than just stand there and hold it. The piece was so heavy that if we let it lean as much as five or six degrees in either direction, it became so heavy that we could not hold hold it up. "'It was that point that Eric said, "'Excuse me, Beal, I'll be right back.' "'I thought he had just given up or had to go pee. "'In any case, I was left standing by the sidewalk "'on 22nd and Champa, "'holding a 400-pound piece of flagstone on its end "'that I had to keep perfectly balanced "'or it would crash to the ground. "'If it fell one way, it would break the sidewalk, "'and if it fell the other way, I was the target. "'I was beginning to think I had made an error "'in judgment about Eric "'when he rounded the corner at a gallop, "'followed closely by a very large black man.' my first look at John Wayne Brewer. I soon learned that his mass and strength were matched by a huge sense of humor. He was coming on a dead run, and the moment he saw me, he burst into laughter. He said later that when he saw me, all he could think of was Sisyphus, the son of Aeolus, having to roll a giant stone up the mountain for eternity. (laughs) At that moment, all I needed was his strength. We could compare anecdotes later. John just moved in and took over. He saw that Eric and he would be glad to lay the stone, or he said that Eric and he would be glad to lay the stone, and then asked me to describe how I wanted the patio deck to look. John asked if we would be willing to feed three or four men a couple meals. I said we would. I had a good feeling about John from the beginning. He also wouldn't take payment until the work was done. I instantly liked John. He was a heavily muscled man somewhere in his late 30s or early 40s, and just under six feet tall. He was as thick as a vault door and very imposing. He had one of those compressed builds with arms that seemed short only because they were muscled and thick themselves. I was a liberal in my thinking, and I've always liked black people in the naive Caucasian person way. I suspect i have out of my way to, distrum- to demonstrate my feelings. However... I was about as white a guy as ever lived, from my mayonnaise-colored legs to my big white bald head. For my looks, I could have been cast as a local bigot in any movie. Like most white guys, I suffered from the angst born of guilt and intimidation around black men. I tried to deny it, but I knew it was like a low-grade fever. I knew it was there. I could function normally, but it pissed me off anyway. In spite of my feelings, John, in all his physical glory, with that deep ebony flesh draped around him like a cloak was instantly able to put me at ease and make me forget my white man goopiness. Nice trick. It was hard to dissect John, to understand how to put his parts together so they made sense. John was intelligent, not just from the streets or life experience, but he possessed a stunning IQ, and his abstract abilities were amazing. When I added his kindness and generosity, and finally that massive sense of humor he he exhibited when we met, he began to sound like a cross between St. Jude and St. Benedict. In fact, his nickname on the streets was St. John. This came to him out of gratitude for his huddle to keep warm theories, caring for his comrades in his little kingdom. On very cold nights, John made the rounds, making sure that his friends were not freezing to death. Many times, he showed strangers how to bunch together and share each other's body heat. It was true that he had few possessions, but what he had he readily shared. Sharing the things that may have meant his own survival on the very next day was tantamount to Bill Gates handing over his entire fortune, including his Palm Pilot. John routinely put all of his worldly belongings on the line without strings. From time to time, especially in the winter, a little food went missing from our kitchen. At first it worried us, and then on one extremely cold day, we found John in the alley just a couple of feet from the back gate holding an impromptu soup kitchen. Joe and I crept away, found Eric, and had him make a two-gallon urn of hot coffee to take out to them. Few tribulations are harder on the human spirit than being unable to get warm. The strange and sad thing was that John, for all his qualities, was also a world-class drunkard, and not just every once in a while, but unfortunately on a regular basis. What good was a drunk, you say? Well, this was where Muddies and John were a good marriage. John wanted to do well and be good, but with his addiction, the world at large did not let him do either. John was just too risky an investment to depend on. Muddies possessed different standards. We had the flexibility that John needed. We had the wherewithal to share and help in John's good works or stand by when he went AWOL for a while. Overall, things turned out quite well. It was another example of urbane symbiosis at work. Starting with laying of the flagstone, John did countless projects for Muddies. We used him and his imposing aura at the door for nightly crowd control, I tutored him in the kitchen in his free time because he wanted to learn to cook. He was good at scrounging materials, although he generally left the scrounging tasks to Eric. If it existed, Eric could find it. The more subtle efforts we left for John, like discouraging taggers or making sure the doorway sleepers cleaned up and cleared out before we opened. He truly held dominion over the inhabitants of his domain, and not in some fear-filled, tyrannical way, but as a respected man of authority. While John was alive, no one stole from us, broke anything, or pissed in our doorways. Taggers never marked us more than once. This influence extended to the parking lot across from us and to our customers. John and Eric both watched over people in their cars in the parking lot across the street. I always thought it was a tribute to John's memory that five years after Muddy's Close Forever, the giant Muddy's Java Cafe sign on the south wall of the building stood untagged and unmarred. For a while, the skinheads decide, decided to use us as their unofficial headquarters. They thought to intimidate and generally make life difficult for us. They didn't count on John and the 15 or so martial artists who hung out at the dojo in our basement. With that said, we did not rid muddies of the skinheads, for we were egalitarians and proud to allow them in, even though they were worthless pariahs. We let the skinheads hang around, if only to prove the larger point. I think they knew how edgy we were about them and how absolutely ready we were to handle them in terms they could understand should the need arise. They tended to behave themselves, of course. Occasionally, the skinheads would force us to toss one or two of them out just to keep them know we would. The skinheads had a giant of a man for their leader. His name was Hugh, and he had been interviewed a couple of times in the Post and News. He faithfully spouted the party line about white status, hating the mud people, the national DNA, and white rights ad nauseum. The things he said were revolting, But his debating skills were very good, so good that people who confronted him on that narrow band of issues had better know what they were talking about. If not, Hugh eviscerated them with imaginary statistics and neo-Nazi rhetoric. He had no real education, so even with all his memorized propaganda, underneath it all, he was dumb as dirt. He was a dangerous man and was at all times surrounded by an entourage of willing soldiers. Like the samurai of old, they would throw themselves into battle at a given signal. Their weakness was that hidden among those willing warriors were many cowards. Hugh himself didn't need the backup for he was as big as a house. He was over six five and on the plus side of a well conditioned two hundred and forty pounds. Hugh was one of those men who were so large and intimidating that even professional street fighters found it difficult to make eye contact, and he was not a coward. I had seen him fight. In spite of Hugh's reputation, John was able to toss him and his toadies out on three different occasions two of the times by himself. John simply out intimidated the intimidator on both the physical and verbal planes. The fact that John was black doubled the humiliation. It was a strange sight the first time I saw John walk this man out of the door by the back of his pants. John weighed about the same but was a good five or six inches shorter so when he walked the man out with a wedgie it was impressive. Hugh and John were followed out the door by Hugh's team, and they were immediately followed by us, John's team. It was the shirts versus the skins. John's secret weapon was taken directly from the principles of Bushido. Like the samurai, he went into any altercation having already died. In Western terms, it meant the samurai did not have the fear of dying to distract him. Therefore, with nothing to lose, Aronin could commit his whole being to the cause. This was something that even... Most brutish men sensed about John, and it generally unnerved them. So many good memories, and I remember that group back then and how intimidating they were. And also, everything he wrote about John rings so true to my memory of him, which is so reassuring because we don't always know. You know, it's super easy to romanticize our memories in the past. But I'm going to read you one other thing. It's a piece of writing that I wrote uh, that includes my recollection of being with John back in that time. And uh, I hope you enjoy this piece of work. It's a short story called J-Spotting. The first time I met Jesus, he took the form of my high school physics professor, John Diffie. Mr. Diffie was a man of extremes. He embodied what I envisioned Dr. Felix Honecker from Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle to look like. Messy hair, white button-down shirt haphazardly buttoned and stuffed into his pants as an afterthought. The remnants of cigarette smoke lingering about his face and clouding up his spectacles. Shirt pocket full of colorful projector pins. He ran into me outside of the portables at school. It was a sunny sort of Texas day where even the shade of the awnings gave little reprieve from the stifling heat. The class was studying one of his favorite subjects, vectors. To demonstrate this, Mr. Diffie was thrilled like a schoolboy to launch a rocket high above the parking lot so that we could calculate all the variables. I was currently pondering dropping out of school and moving away. Troubles at home brewed deep within me, and I was untethered like a lost satellite orbiting around the shrinking star of my youth. As I walked along the path outside one of the nondescript tin buildings, Mr. Diffie, burst through a glass door ahead of me and like a steam locomotive headed straight forward without seeming to realize I was there. He stopped short directly in front of me, waves of frenetic energy pulsing around his frame. With a smirk and a flash of movement, he pulled out his blue projector pen out of his pocket and stooped down before me on the wooden planks and drew a single arrow. Coming back up, he, he his eyes squinted as he peered above his wire frames. He pointed first to me and then to the arrow. There that's your direction with an inspired grin like he had caught the cat in the cradle he sheathed his pen and continued on his track around me and to the next class the next time I spotted him he was hanging out at muddy's java cafe in denver john denver that's what we used to call him the last name wasn't really denver but that's what we used to call him as he was an icon of five points John was a father of sorts to us wayward kids gathered from all over to stay up late, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and swapping stories outside the walls of the old warehouse building turned brothel turned coffee house on the edge of downtown. He would wash dishes in the kitchen and then step outside into into the stale night to smoke a cigarette. He wore tattoos faded thin on his forearm, flexing with each drag as he hotboxed and greeted those milling about. It was a scene. Everyone was welcome. Everyone was searching. John flicked the butt into the street and smiled as a motorcycle rode past with a man screaming behind in the wind. Our resident's schizophrenic. He didn't like taking his meds and only felt free from the voices when riding on the back of the 750cc BMW. The place was haunted with both real and imagined beings. It was a moment of time you longed to live within, yet were desperate to see what was on the other side. One night, I was on the edge of a very familiar dark wave, threatening to engulf me in hopeless depression. Reluctant to head back alone to my rented room in Capitol Hill, John and I were lingering outside after his shift, and we decided to take a walk to his place for another drink. It was pitch black, save for the streetlights illuminating brown buildings. Black, brown, and light. We walked through the empty quiet of the hood, and I felt safe by John's side. No one was going to mess with him because he belonged. I was the one standing out skinny and pale, wearing ironic black against the deep chocolate tones of his skin. He had a calm assuredness about his gait that demanded authority. We climbed up to the top of the stairs, and he grabbed a gallon of cheap vodka already a third of the way down. We sat there peering through small window panes over the buildings and into the starry expanse beyond. His black, scruffy beard was speckled gray, his eyes wistful, and he talked about his family, life, and regrets. Watching the blue smoke swirl towards the light, he listened as I shared my heartache, toasting each memory, and emotion with another swig of throat-burning wisdom. He was a hard-fought 50s. I was still in the trenches, not yet 21. And by 50s, maybe he was younger than that, now that I'm reading this. He told me he wouldn't be around much longer. In my naive, youthful passion, I was emphatic he had plenty of time left. He just smiled and took a swig in resigned acceptance. Ever the gentleman, John never once made moves on me. Flesh wasn't important, only companionship conversation lulled as the night sky began the gradual shift of colors toward morning, and he walked me back to the safety of the coffee house in a cab ride home. He passed months later, likely from alcohol-related illness. At his funeral, it didn't matter the strange and questioning looks of his family. I let the river of loss pour unabashedly down my cheeks as I looked at his peaceful face lying amidst the ruffled white silk of the, of the casket. It would be years before I'd spot him again, this time on the dirty and raucous streets of New York playing blues guitar. I can't recall his name now. Memories are never linear. I'll call him John NYC. I'd like to think that God has that sort of sense of humor. Camped out on 59th Street, his spot was under the jagged blue scaffolding as he serenaded the traffic on 9th Ave. I was attending John Jay College for my undergraduate degree and looking for stories to write up in the Sentinel. His mournful voice and dedicated strumming stopped me short one night on my way home. Between licks, I started asking him questions and told him I would visit again the next night. We began a courtship of sorts, me with my tape recorder, him seated on a dirty milk crate beneath a faded gray U-Haul packing blanket. It seemed that he was playing to an audience of his own. Bundled up against the cold, only his arms emerged as he proudly caressed each steel string. He would pause to give his arthritic hands a break, his flat pick wedged between the dark pads of his thumb and forefinger. Then he'd peer at me with his dark eyes reflecting the glow of the streetlights and tell me stories of his youthful prime as a musician cutting his teeth in Asbury Park, playing on the boardwalk just up the way from the Stone Pony. He had talent and promise, but wasn't allowed to play in the clubs on account of his skin. Supposed to have a permit to play the boardwalk, but sometimes they still got arrested. He spent many nights in jail for for playing music. It never stopped him. He had his permit still, and he pulled it out of his wallet as proof, a small piece of paper all creased and worn from years of endurance. He would nod to a passerby on the sidewalk and pluck the chords to another blues tune. He kept at it purposeful, like it was more than a job. The neck on his guitar worn deep into grooves. I sang with him once. It was liberating sitting at his feet amidst the throng of the night, belting out a soulful melody to pierce the cacophony of horns, music, laughter, shouting, and cars whizzing by. Somehow it sorted out all the madness and made sense of it. "'a defiant peace in the storm. "'I went back the next night, and he was gone. "'No trace of his blankets, no notes left behind. "'The fabric of the night seemed to be a missing string. "'And I realized that I was left once again "'to consider chance encounters and to continue on. "'He would show up again over the years, "'unexpected but always on time. "'Not always a John, not always a man. "'It would happen in a few words spoken by a stranger "'or a kind look of understanding.' maybe through the generosity of a broken spirit. Always there is the acknowledgement and reassurance of perfect, simple love within imperfect people. So that is going to wrap up this episode, taking you back in time to my history and my connection with Muddy's Java Cafe in Denver and what it used to be. I highly encourage, if you're interested to get a copy of Muddy's Chronicles, the mu- the memoirs uh, that Bill Stevens wrote. There's also a second version of this, and that author I am going to reach out to and see if I can't bring him on the show so I can interview him and we can chat about our times at Muddy's and hear some of his stories from his uh, sequel to Bill Stevens' book. So um, anyway... I hope you enjoyed this uh, little travel back in time with me. Um, tune in at, for next week. I'm not sure what I'm doing, so stay tuned. Be surprised. And if you like any of these episodes, please share with others. Um, love to to just share out some of these stories to preserve the memories of these places and people that are so important to us and um, and really create the fabric. Of our our community, everywhere within the world, it's a world community. Um, so, uh, thank you again so much for tuning in. I hope you have a fabulous week, and uh, I'll talk to you again here on Flipping Dreams. Thank you. the I know to come back. The right seas and and I say, and I say, hey, You can find Flipping Dreams Podcast anywhere you love to listen to podcasts. Or you can find us on Road you can also find me on my social media, Facebook at Heather Renee May on Instagram at underscore every day is May or on my website at Heather Renee com. That's Heather R E N double dot Y.com. This has been a rogue media network do